My guest today is artist Melanie Hodge. Melanie is an American-born, British-based artist. Her work is magical, full of color, and uses a novel technique known as reverse glass painting. Something you will learn from my conversation with Melanie is that there is always a way to stay true to your creative passions, even in the face of complex life challenges. Speaking for myself as an artist, I know that the inner critic can always find ways to discourage the creative process. It tells us that we can't do it or that it's just too hard. After listening to Melanie's story, I have a new perspective on this. When she became a mother, Melanie knew that her creative work would need to be balanced with the responsibilities of motherhood. When her son was diagnosed with autism, these responsibilities intensified. It became clear to Melanie that if she were to stay connected with her creative practice, she would need to find new ways to work. She tells us how she adjusted to life as both a mother and an artist. We also talk about naive folk and outsider art, and Melanie talks about the distinction between them. We talk about the element of surprise in her artwork. Melanie also discusses her role with creative carers. She founded Creative Carers to help other carers reconnect to the creative process. We start our conversation by talking about the balance between responsibility and creativity. I want to talk about balance in life. I want to know how yes. do you <laughs> how do you integrate um, two needs of responsibility and creativity? So I'm an artist and a parent, and I know that people have been doing this for as long as people have been around. Um, but I found it really difficult doing both. Um, my son was born 19 years ago, and he has autism, which has learning difficulties. So he was a very slow developer and very late to talk. And he needed a lot of extra support. And also within the UK system, that requires a lot of paperwork. You need to do a lot of bureaucracy and speaking to teachers and feeding that back through the SEN teams. And then when his sister was born, that added another layer of parenting. And what I found in the end was that while I had been raised to think that women could do it all, I really couldn't do it all. There was a point at which trying to do art made me more unhappy than trying to do it or just giving it up. So um, in the end, um, I took a long break. I took about a four year break when my son was born. And then after my daughter was born, I took another two and a half, three year break. And it wasn't until they were both in school that I was really able to come back to that part of myself. Um, because for me, my mental health, it was just easier not to try and do it both. Now, um, now that they're both in school, they're both much older. My son's 19 and my daughter is 14. They're much more independent. So um, if we just exclude lockdown, because that makes everything a little bit different, I found that while they're in school, I can do the physical part of, of being an artist. But when they're around, I do a lot of the mental work. So I'm present with them and I'm engaging in what they're doing and I'm supporting them as I need to. And I'm doing other bits of my life, but in the back of my head, <clears throat> if I have a spare moment, 
or a few minutes, or I'm sitting in the car waiting for a pickup time, a lot of stuff that goes on in my head is actually based on my art. And so I now consider my caring, my parent caring role to be as much a part of my art process as, as doing the actual painting, um, which makes it impossible to tell someone how long it takes to make a work because you know there are years of conceptual development going on behind any one painting. And it's only in the moment when I sit down to do it that it actually starts to take a solid form. That's very interesting um, because uh, I feel like the society wants like everything be fast. Everything nowadays is very quick and we don't really mm. appreciate the um, slow process in everything. Like, um, yes, like your work is uh, very detail oriented. So um, mm. you have to spend a lot of time to create a piece. But even with, with the uh, uh, parenting and the responsibility around that area, so that make it a bit um, um, slower, as you put it. And yes. I think, I think um, it's kind of um, maybe the other way it's not right. It's just being in a rush all the time. The outcome is important, not the process, not we go through the process and what we experience through that process. I think that's, I think that's really true because when I first came back, so we'd been living abroad. And when we came back to the UK in 2012, I spent the first two years really trying to grow my artistic network really fast because I'd been away for 10 years and I had to sort of start from zero. And I didn't do art school. I didn't go, even in the US where I grew up, I didn't do art as a degree. So I'm coming at it from not only outside of the culture, but I'm coming out of it from outside of the educational expectation. And in that process, a lot of the people I spoke to um, wanted me to let the art speak for itself. And they wanted me to just talk about the finished product. And for me, the process and the medium is 99% of why I do it. So for me to try and say, okay, this is the painting and just walk away. Actually, once the painting's done, I, I'm already moving on to the next thing, but I can't leave that process behind. So the way I work, this might, this might help um, explain how I balance them both in the time consuming nature, is I do the detail first because it's reverse glass painting. So when I first have an idea, I do a rough sketch and then I can spend as long as I like filling in the little details, the little mark making that makes the pattern or that um, creates maybe a bed of flowers or the stars across the sky. And that's really slow, but I can do it in five minute bursts, which means that I can do it and I can be interrupted in the middle and walk away and come back, walk away and come back. Um, and it's only at the very last stages when I start doing larger areas of background cover that I actually need to set aside an entire day or an entire two days in order to get the paint on while it's wet and while I can blend it. So for me, the process is, that is how I'm spending my life. I'm spending my life in five minute 
firsts doing maybe a centimeter of stars and then walking away and maybe not coming back to it for a day or a week or if there's something that I finished that needs to dry it might be a month and so I find it really difficult to be product finished artwork focused um, so I've now taken the decision that instead of trying to set a timetable I make the work in my own time and it's only when I have a body of work that I think is big enough that I will then even consider sort of doing an exhibition um, and it's only when I have finished work that I can enter it in the competition which means I'm very restricted um, in that I have to have a competition that precisely hits the theme of whatever I finished um, last because I can't I can't do it within a six month or even a three month time frame. I, and I think that's make your art very special. It's something that um, needs a lot of um, stillness and, and letting go and just be with the piece. So what you're doing, it's um, very impressive. And I think it's mostly the expectation of um, artists is make it a bit hard. Mm -hmm. Because um, why it should be any um, time frame or how many work you need to produce in a year, that doesn't matter, I think. Well, I yes, and I think I'm in a very privileged, it does. I'm in a privileged position because I don't need to sell. So I don't need to create new work in order to put it out to market and to have it sell because I'm in such a privileged position that I can do the work. I've taken 10 years to learn, probably 20 years to learn that actually I can't rush the process and the work is better and I'm happier and the children are happier when I let it take its own time. One of your mantras is uh, remember to breathe. And you yes. also said that you're not talking about inhaling or exhaling. Can you expand it a bit more? Well, it, it is sort of about inhaling and exhaling, but it's about, it's about taking the time to just be in a moment. And in fact, after the last year and having had um, some physical illness and speaking with friends who have more severe physical illness, I think that my mantra, just keep breathing, is really helpful if you're physically fit. And if you're not physically fit, then I would actually adjust that and say, remember to breathe, but take lots of rests. Again, I think it's part of the, the way culture is often trying to push us to produce more, be better, be bigger. Um, and actually I've spent the last year just doing a lot of sitting and staring out of the window. And whenever there's lots of upheaval or emotional distress, or I'm deep in my son's statement of special needs, um, or which is now in an EHCP, um, there is a lot of that time where you have to sit and stare and look out the window. But if you're also um, dealing with weakness or fatigue, then it's really hard not to judge ourselves for sitting still. And so I've spent 20 years telling myself 
that actually you can only move so fast and sometimes you need that time to sit still and I think that for me that I sound like I've achieved it it's still very much a work in progress <laughs> that's why I, I'm really interested to talking about this because um, we are not looking after our needs that is very crucial mm. and um, yeah. when I talk to people sometimes I notice that they don't even know what their need is for example if yeah. looking outside the window or being in touch with nature or go for a walk is one of our need then if yeah. um, we don't do that then we're we not going to feel that we are balanced we are not in a state of harmony um, that's what I want to talk about it because um, I know because of the um, life situation you have and mm. being a mother and uh, all that, it's, it's make you to think uh, more deeply than how can I balance my life to be able to create and look after my family and yeah. be fine. But a lot of people, um, you see they work very hard but sometimes they actually doing that because they want to distract themselves from what they're feeling it's kind yes. of become an addiction it's that's why even like if you ask them to see the seal um just focus on your breathing or just look at the window look at the trees listen to birds they can't it's it's very hard for them to do that because they are in a state of just moving. And if they sit with themselves, if they wanna um, just, they have to feel whatever yeah. it's in their body and that's not easy. Um, no, and I think for me, the, the fact that my son has autism has allowed me to think about these things in a different way. So I now consider processing time and, and that's, you know, think of yourself as a computer with a little spinning rainbow wheel going round and round and round. Um, and there are, if there are lots of big things going on around me in the, in the world or in our lives, I find I do need to take more of that processing time. And some of that processing time happens through making the artwork. Um, it, it gives me something to think about other than the primary concern of the moment. Um, it allows me to keep my sense of self intact so that I'm not 100% dependent on the external forces for feedback. And when I am able to paint, then it's a, it is about breathing in and out, but breathing in and out with the process. So if I'm doing a load of stars, which are just little tiny dots done with a toothpick or a cocktail stick, then I do need to be very in tune with my breathing. Um, and that, that, so in fact, I'm thinking less about the painting when I'm painting than when I'm not painting. <laughs> so once I get to the painting, I'm literally thinking about technique. I'm thinking about paint color. I'm not thinking about the big picture. All of that has already happened or it will happen in, in the quiet moments when I just look at a work in progress and consider what might happen next. You let go of everything. So your mind is free and you just create. That's the ideal world. In the real world, I've got a timer set on my phone so I don't forget to pick a child up from school. 
Um, sometimes I, um, you know, I have to pace myself based on my stamina. So, you know, I haven't actually painted on glass in over a year now. And a lot of that has been because just when the pandemic hit and the lockdown happened and I was having to homeschool my son, which took a lot more effort than, than homeschooling my daughter, because my son, I had to create a schedule and I had to be present for a good portion of the day for it. Um, but I made sure to schedule in quiet times. And actually, because I was physically unwell, I was using those quiet times to sleep. And so the, my brain sort of works in compartments. And so if, if I'm focusing and overly obsessing about my health, I'm not thinking about other things, but actually then having the artwork gives me a, a break. Um, and if I'm overly obsessing about my son, then I also have a break. <laughs> so there is a lot of processing. It's just, it's thinking about things without realizing you're thinking about them. Um, and problem solving happens in that phase. So if I leave a painting for six months to a year and I've got sketches that are 10 years old, I haven't even started to put on glass, the painting changes. But in that time, I've often resolved maybe technical problems. And if I spend a bit of time thinking about the painting and then I go back in to support my son, I've often found that there's uh, a new energy that I'm able to put into his conversation because I've sort of taken a step back, taken a break um, from his world and gone into my world and come back. So it's a cycle. Um, and sometimes the cycle is very art-based and sometimes it's very autism Alex-based. Um, and I sort of just, I've learned to sort of listen to that, that need, which is completely outside of, I don't know, expectation, I guess. Because if there were an expectation, I wouldn't be able to do it. That's very inspiring to me. Um, I can feel you truly. Um, <laughs> I do. Uh, I, I, I'm I, not a mother, but my mom, my brother, mm -hmm. um, she's looking after him for since he was 15. And yeah. I, I can see um, in her eyes how difficult it is. And sometimes she can't mm -hmm. even have a time for herself. I think that it's really difficult. And a lot of the long breaks I took are because if you're being pushed to your limit in one direction, there's not a lot of reserves left for the creativity or the creativity has been, has, has been hijacked in a way. So, and that's why in the end, I stopped trying to define my art independent of everything else um and in fact i think the most helpful thing that anyone ever said to me was they asked me if i could describe my perfect art practice and i i mean i'd been in tears and anger and frustration and not being able to create and just every time i picked up a paintbrush someone would call my name and i'd have to go and do something to fix it and actually what I realized was that my perfect art practice was being available for those needs. And suddenly I went from pushing against this brick wall to realizing that I was actually in my perfect space. But that meant that 95% of my art practice 
is going on in my head and nobody sees it. So, and there's and there's no tangible evidence. I don't, I've kept a sketchbook during lockdown and it's taken me 14 months to maybe get halfway through it. And it's, it's just as slow as painting on glass, it turns out. Um, and, and so often, you know, what I do is my social media is, is past artwork or it's moments of every life, everyday life, because actually, unless I'm painting and then I can do lots and lots of progress paintings of nothing much happening, there's not a lot to say. I can tell you what I have available because I've turned it into a print so that it's more affordable and I can show you where it is and how I'm talking about it. But actually there's no new painting now for two years going on almost, yeah, I think, yeah, two and a bit years. You do the sketching. You can consider that as a creating it an, is. artwork. It is. And I think the, the true beauty of what I do on glass um, and the very essence of what it is, is it shows what small steps actually achieve. So in, I've been painting on glass in 10 years and I've now got 30 or 40 paintings. Nothing much happens on a day-to-day -day basis, but if I look at it over time, I have a number of large paintings that I can go, that's actually really quite amazing because I did that in five minutes at a time. And, and so the importance of those small steps shouldn't be underestimated. And, and for me, that's become a part of that mantra of just keep breathing because if time just keeps passing, things keep happening very slowly, things build up. Um, and then at the very last moment when I put the last layer of paint on and I have to leave it to dry and I can't even turn it around really, I then have to walk away for like two, three weeks and let it dry before I even get to see the finished product. At that point, it's almost completely disengaged from the process because the process has been done in five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, six hours, done but it's taken like three years. When I look at your work, uh, I feel like your work is very timeless. So I can't say which one was possibly created first and then which one uh, wasn't. Also, it's, it's very heartwarming color um, mm. and uh, is a reflection of life with innocence. And I think this is... I, description of um, what you describe yourself that you're working with in within naive art as well um, do you yes. what well, the way I work is partly because of the media I use um, there is some semblance and similarity um, so if you can see behind me the top row of bears is watercolor yeah. um, and I was doing sort of 20 layers of watercolor in a, on top of each other to get the color. But now that I'm working on glass and in oils, I want that color fast. And I want that, the detail, the detail makes me happy. I like the fact that I can spend weeks and weeks just doing little tiny bits and then it will add depth later on. Um, and when I started painting on glass, it was completely out of a naive tradition. And in that, it's 
it's self-taught. So um, there are very few artists who work on glass in the way I work on it. And the people who taught me don't even work the way I work. I took a little bit of one person's technique and a little bit of someone else's technique. And I watched someone else painting and went, oh, I can see how I could use that. And I've once had it described as sort of um, magical folk art, which I quite like. I want it to be something that brings me joy. Um, and I want the colors to be bright. In fact, if it's too pastel, I don't even think I see it. It's sort of like it's never finished until it's properly vibrant. And once I sort of turned and literally I turned the first little painting I did round and I looked at it and I just went, I don't know how I did that, but I know this in a really, in a way I'd never felt about any of my watercolors. Um, and then I started looking at other naive artists and I realized that there's sort of a, a, a visual language that I was pulling on, I was responding to things I'd seen but hadn't really recognized like five years later, suddenly I'd see my painting next to someone else's painting on a slideshow. And I literally went, oh my God, I see, I see the, I see the connection. So the fact that it's timeless to me is really gratifying because that's, there isn't really a time when I'm making it. So actually to have that sense of continuity and being anywhere um, and the fact that you may not know what I've painted before another, though I do like to date my paintings, mostly so it helps me remember when I did them. Um, but I dated them from when I started them. So I can be working on a painting that is not finished, that was dated four years previously. Wow. And then I kind of have to decide, do I then keep the date on this one or do I not? And, and it, it, it'll, be a, it'll be a decision that doesn't always follow logic. So I love that it's timeless because I think it, it sort of, the whole process is timeless and the, the family of paintings in which they live in the naive paintings, um, I think also carry a, a bit of that. Love and joy, happiness. It's a very mm. high vibration energy. And um, mm. you feel that within um, your practice when you paint. And mm. also, I think uh, your audience sense that too. So um, sometimes um, I could create something that um, I feel a certain thing about it, but I'm not sure what my audience cannot yeah. feel about that. But your work, you said you feel joy, and I feel joy when I look at it. And that's lovely because when I'm making it, I try really. I've done a couple of commissions, and I try really hard not to think about about the audience at the end. And and with a commission, it's particularly difficult because you're doing it for a specific person. And I want to I want to put things in that bring them joy, but you still you're taking risks. You're making decisions, at like weird hours of the day or night because that just happens to be when you're putting the paint on the glass and there's a risk so I'm really glad that you feel joy <laughs> that brings me joy I do and, and uh, I like I can say I really congratulate you on that because I, I do want to when I feel something like I, I 
had a series of uh, working the concept of peace, but I don't really know if um, other person feel that, but I can see it because I look at your works and I can say, I do feel joy. I also, I feel love. And well, um, I think your works are fantastic because they're complex and they take, so uh, your line drawings in particular, the ones that are on the healing artistry site, I love tracing the lines and looking at them. So those, those make me feel meditative, just looking at those. I don't know how you uh, how your process is for making them, but um, I can feel that those are works that you've spent a lot of time on, but they've also developed very organically. Yeah, that's that's actually I, I feel like I'm meditating when I uh, draw that. I, I don't quite get what's the difference between naive art and folk art, because I think um, yeah. there is a kind of rejection of established value. It's, it's like it's bold. But it's, mm. But I, I think I prefer you talk about it because I want to learn. Well, um, I would also um, put, so I'll, I'll t- talk a little bit about naive art and folk art, but also outsider art because yeah, they, they cross over in lots of ways. Um, and labels, while very helpful sometimes, can also be really confusing. So folk art for me, could be very similar to what I do in that it's, except for mine's all fantasy based. (laughs) But folk art tends to be about everyday lives. It tends to be about everyday situations and everyday people within those situations. Um, And that every culture has its own variation of that. Um, Even if they don't do figurative art, there will be decorative folk art that comes out in pottery, in house decorating, in furniture, motifs that will come out. And that, so folk art is very much based in everyday life. Um, Naive art is sort of two parts. You can be naive because you're self-taught. You haven't had academic training, you haven't had formal art training. you've come at it just because you want to make something that you like. Um, But you can also be what is sometimes referred to as like fake or faux naive, which is someone who has academic training, but paints in a naive style, which would be more simplistic, innocent, childlike. And I kind of come in the middle of those. I've had a little bit of art training, but never in oils, never on glass. Um, never even in watercolor. I mostly had um, drawing and design classes when I did art. Um, And I'm definitely self-taught on the glass painting. I had like three sessions with an established glass painter and he sort of gave me the mechanics of how you mix the oil and how you put it on glass and how you blend it. But he he had me try and do something realistic and uh, it was sort of like a pear a still life of a pair and and it was atrocious and he gave me an abstract pattern and I was away and it was like I can do this and he was like that is not the same painter who just did this terrible pair um so I then but then after three sessions he said you're asking me questions I don't know the answers to because you're working in a different way so everything after that is me figuring it out on my own Outsider art, again, it can involve folk artists, 
It can involve naive artists. Um, it can also um, cover artists who work um, sort of through a medium sort of way where they feel like they're being completely taken over and they have no, they, they're just a mechanical tool to do whatever their spirit guide says. It can be artists who work very compulsively in collage or in very detailed fine drawing. It can be artists who work in that way, but have had formal art training. So again, you've got this outsider art could be a totally established or someone who has become established who does have an art background, but is now working in this raw way. Um, it's also known as raw art and brute art. So it's got a sort of unfiltered emotional impact on the paper. So I'm a member of both the Association of British Naive Artists and a member of Outside In. And Outside In, I'm also an ambassador for. And what they do is Outside In provides a platform for artists who face significant barriers to the art world. Um, that might be through disability, it might be through health, or it might be through social circumstances. And, and I really identify with that because I find engaging with the established art world, in quotes, as a sort of idea, really challenging. I, I can't meet uh, competition deadlines. I can't guarantee I'm going to be available for an event. I can't plan significantly far ahead in order to ensure that everything lines up to be able to participate in workshops or training or other things that you might expect in, the, in, a, in a normal artistic practice. I can't do residencies. Um, so outside in for me is, is brilliant because it recognizes that part of my practice which really struggles to get seen. Um, but the naive association also suits my artwork. Um, and I know artists who, who also cross the lines in lots of ways between folk and naive and outsider. So um, for those who feel like it fits, I think use all the tags <laughs> yeah. um, because you don't know who's going to want to see your work. That's exactly true. I was reading about outsider art and it mentioned that um, the scholar when defined what outsider art is, uh, was referring to prisoners, um, mental health illness, and mm. artists who uh, are marginalized. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's where you get the, um, a lot of their work is very emotionally raw. It's unfiltered. It doesn't, I mean, when I say that, I mean, um, so as part of a mainstream society, there are things that we may not talk about. It may be body shapes. It may be, I mean, it's more common now, but there are taboo subjects and artists have an established way of being expected to depict the human figure, the landscape and emotion. And a lot of artists from mental health backgrounds with um, a lot of them coming from prison environments, some of them having learning disabilities, their art is incredibly powerful because it's a way of seeing the world through their eyes. Um, and it doesn't fit 
expected norms. So it, in, in autism, we talk about sort of um, neurodiversity and being able to see or experience the world in a different way. And I think outsider art is the most incredible visual representation of that. Um, many artists may have similar aspects to their work, but they will all be wholly unique because they're coming at their artwork from a different place emotionally and physically. So the marginalization of, of those people who are physically in prison or physically in a mental health hospital, but also those who are, are emotionally struggling to be neurotypical, really, to, to, to modulate their emotions, um, to modulate their visual representation to fit some sort of, you know, expected finished product. So the, um, I, I think it's art at its most visceral in a lot of ways, and I respond to it that way. Very fascinating. I was looking at the, um, the artists that they were considered outsider. And I just love to look at it and figure out what's going on. What is this point of view? Mm. It's actually very interesting. And it's just, if, if you, you want to look at it uh, from this point of view, everybody in the world has its own world. Like, yeah. The culture, the, the, the country they come from, um, the society, the family, if um, you're wealthy, if you're not, and all those labels, if, if the experience the person has yeah. is just uh, shape the uh, viewpoint of the world. So even mm -hmm. if um, I'm not considered in a in, um, mental health um, category as an artist, yeah. Still, I do have my own viewpoint, but maybe, I'm not sure, maybe they are very in touch, actually, with what's going on. They don't censor. Maybe, yes. like, unconsciously, I'm talking about, because they don't censor. They, um, whatever it comes, it's raw. And that's yeah. why it's fascinating. I love their works. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to look at it. And I think is. also a, a lot of the work reminds us, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of outsider artists who work in an obsessional way. So they either live very obsessionally, they collect very obsessively. Um, they obsess about the mark making. So you get lots of repeat marks. And I think actually all of us have those tendencies. So there's a lot that's also familiar, you know, there's, there's a sense of emotional uh, displacement where you 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 don't recognize you know the art is very unfamiliar and yet it has something that speaks to us because I think we all have these in various amounts and it's just a matter of how well we might self-modulate or we might self-edit as to whether they appear frequently in our artwork or in our daily lives. That's very true. Um, I was very tired uh, the other day and I had this energy was building inside me and I wanted to release it. So I started just sketching very fast and it just created some kind of um, sound that it, it sounds like a sound of the space. And that was so soothing for me and it relaxed me. And if you look at yeah. that piece, 
it's so different from everything I've done. That's where it can help us physically as well as mentally. Yeah. I used to teach an art class for teenage girls. Um, and, and we'd start every class by just having a shake out. We'd have to shake every bit of our body before we could sit down. Because physically, I was like, you have to get the day off of you before you can sort of get into the zone. And I think that that's, you know, there are days when I'm painting and it's too tense. I have to go out and, you know, go for a walk or, or do something else or, you know, suddenly stomp around the studio to sort of get rid of that energy. Um, one of my favorite things is you take a deep breath and then you blow a raspberry out because you're like, oh, I've just had enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that physical engagement with the process, you know, some people paint with their entire bodies. Yeah. And, and actually, but the whole, whatever we're making, even if you're sitting in front of a computer, there's a sensory feedback on that. You can just draw some lines and in that movement release some sort of energy. Um, in terms of making, I think sensory input is really quite important. And part of this comes from my experience with Alex in that um, I've run workshops for people who don't necessarily do a lot of artwork and you respond to different materials in different ways. So I've got, um, you know, I had one student who, who absolutely loved pastels because she loved getting the chalk in her fingers. She loved that feeling. And then there would be three other women in the group and none of them could handle it. <laughs> so they were working with colored pencil because they were like, no, no, I know. I cannot have, I know. And I think that for me, my art totally changed when I started working on glass. There is something sensory wise that I find very satisfying about the way I have to work. Um, and I do not like working on canvas because it's bumpy. <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting to me. I never, think about it that way. So we respond differently to um, um, different material. So, and some of them work for us, some of them don't. I think there, and uh, yes. And I think also that we work in different ways with different material. So there is a connection between what I do in colored pencil on paper and what I do on glass, because I go through a paper medium for both of those. But I do quilting as well. And my quilting is very straight lines, very much as regimented as possible. But I like working with the fabric because I get something out of that sensory feedback. Um, your work is very different. And when we were speaking earlier, you said you didn't see a connection between your, your formal art, and I guess I would call it, and your drawings that you do for your own well-being. But actually, I think the fact that they are so different is what actually brings them together because your brain is working in a totally, well, I don't know how your brain works, but for me, that those processes would require me to work in different ways. And I actually find that I need, I need that that break. I need that sensory feedback from a different part of my body. I need to not have to be making decisions. So in my quilting, I tend not, you know, I it's regimented in that it's all straight lines, but I tend not to plan it. 
overlay. It, it, there's still quite a lot of, you know, I just randomly am going to do this piece and this piece, but they both have a straight line. Um, and I, I think as creative people, the sensory input, but also recognizing that our brains may work differently for different mediums. And some of us can focus obsessionally on one way of working. And then for me, I don't even know how to market my quilting. I mean, so far I'm not making enough to sell, so it doesn't really matter, but it's a totally different product in the end. But for me, the process is really important because it allows me to, to just think in a different way for a bit. Yeah. Thank you. I get that question quite a lot and I can't explain it. Now you help me to be able to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> Maybe. It's giving you something to think about the next time you go into it. I do. I actually um, want to go and think about this. I want to talk about a bit about your artwork. Any a story behind like Seeking Harmony series about um, using uh, animal totems in, in those uh, series? So the, um, the Seeking Harmony series was my first foray into sort of a narrative series. And I had wanted to do book illustration. And I may come back to book illustration at some point, but it'll be a really long-term project as most of my things are. Um, and um, if you know Khalil Gibran, who wrote The Prophet, he's got a little story of, about how you go looking all over the world for what you want, and then you find that it's actually in your backyard. <laughs> yes. And for me, that, that series was really about that, you know, you start from one place dreaming of somewhere else, but you get somewhere else and actually then you want to come back and you realize that what you wanted was there, but you you had to sort of accept it or see it in a new way. Um, and I think a lot of my, um, my personal philosophy is that actually a lot of what we want is here. We just don't see it in the same way. And it came out in that epiphany about you know, what's your perfect art practice? And I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm sitting on it. <laughs> and I hadn't seen it. And suddenly, you know, the whole world changed because I was like, oh, I'm exactly where I want to be in exactly the position I want to be in. And instead of fighting that mentally and emotionally getting upset about it, I just need to work it now. I need to figure out which bits of it I'm going to do now. And how do I talk to people about it so they know that I'm still an artist, I'm still me, I'm just doing something different for a bit. And that's, that's definitely still a work in progress. And the animal totems also kind of evolved in a different way, but a very playful way. Um, and also I prefer drawing animals to people. <laughs> My people all tend to look a lot alike. I'm much better at doing different animal forms than it doing individual people. So they have a, a mythic fairy tale sort of quality to them. And it's only the, the bears in particular um, I love because I started painting on glass in Zagreb. And Zagreb is a capital city of Croatia with mountains rising behind it. And the mountains are called the Medvenica mountains. And in Slavic languages, medved or medved um, is, a, is the word for bear. 
So for me, as an outsider coming into the language and the culture, they were bare mountains from the very beginning. And so almost all of my, um, aside from the polar bears up above me, those are way before Zagreb, um, all of my glass paintings with bears are all, are all Zagreb bears because they are the Medvenica mountains. And when I said that to a Croatian artist, I had to explain it because for him, they were Medvenica mountains. They, for him, they had no connection there because there's just a slight softening in one of the sounds and he'd never really deconstructed it in that way. Hmm. And once, once I started playing with the bears, I was like, well, I actually quite like the animals because I can draw them better. I can paint them better. They're more fun to sort of, I don't know, inhabit. Because when I'm drawing something, I sort of like to feel like I am that thing. How would I feel if I were sitting in this position? And that, you know, rather than looking in a mirror, I try to imagine it from inside. I don't know if it works, but, um, and, and I like that idea. And, and once I started thinking of them that way, and the fact that they just kept popping up, I'd have a painting with no animals. And suddenly um, uh, I have a painting called a storm in a teacup. And it's a girl in a teacup and she's looking towards a London skyline and there's this giant sea. And in the sea, there is this giant fish. And I had painted half of that fish before I knew it was a fish. Oh. And I just walked into the studio because because of the, the long times between sessions. And one day I walked in and I just went, it's a fish. It's a giant, enormous fish. And so I'm going to put two little tiny fish in. But at that point I was like, they just pop up. <laughs> <laughs> That's the element of surprise. So you do have that. So you, you see your artwork, a fish coming out of that piece and you didn't expect it. I love that. And I think it only happens because I'm working over such a long period of time that things evolve. Or I'll have a painting, it'll feel like it's done. And then halfway through the background, I'll go, oh, it could really use this. And I'll just stick something in the back. Um, and for me, I like the fact that I can surprise myself that way. Because you'd think I'm living the paintings in my head. They're always there. I take three years to paint something. How could I possibly not know what's coming? But then I can walk into the studio or I can turn the painting around. Um, so after I finished the, the storm in a teacup, um, I exhibited it. And um, on one of the trips up to see it in its exhibition in London, I went to the British Museum. And they had one of those little mini exhibitions in a little tiny room just off the main foyer of the British Museum. And it was, um, it was about Aboriginal Australian art. And it was something about the fish. It was totem, not, not totem totems, but carved poles that represented journeys or might've been maps. And there was a video about someone talking about how we are all fish trying to find the sea. And suddenly I was like, oh, but that's my painting, only I didn't know it. <laughs> so even after it's finished, you know, it, the process is, is still in my head, it's still evolving, but the finished product, I can walk away from that in a way. But the, but the process is what's, what's, you know, pulling me to the next thing. I was um, looking at your work and I was looking for, because it's very, um, it has a lot of details. I was like, mm. what is in this painting that I'm not seeing it? 
So I was very curious to like investigate to see because I'm sure there are elements that by just looking at it once, you can see it, you can find it. But then if you come back, you find something else. I don't know, that was how I felt. It was like, oh, that's interesting. So. Um, well, now you know, I'm doing, this, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> I don't think there's any one way to, to look at my paintings or to respond to them or to read them because a lot of times, I've taken something very whimsical. Um, I, I guess if I had to choose, you know, what drives my creative practice, you know, I, I like, I want to more follow the whimsy, um, but that's what drives a lot of the original concept is what would happen if. So the storm in a teacup is because of the, the, the little saying, you know, that a big, it, it's a small problem, but because it's in a teacup, it seems like a big problem. And, and so that's how that painting evolved. There's something playful about it that, but that means that I'm not, I'm not gonna tell someone else what they might respond to because the painting doesn't have one meaning. No, it doesn't. That's where the idea came from. That's where it evolved to in my head. But I love hearing what other people see because oftentimes they'll see things I, I didn't see. For me, it's like a dreamland, a land that you can imagine anything. It's possible. That's why your and, and work what if is you very, just turn? Yeah, that. Yeah, that's why it's very joyful. If you turn, what what would you fill that blank space with? Exactly. Because I've only just given you a window, just a little window. You've got a whole lot of other worlds in there. I I did actually ask a lot of my question. Is there anything you want to talk about that I forgot? I think one of the things that I found to be really important is, is also community. Um, as an artist working alone, it is very isolating and I'm an introvert, so I don't mind being on my own for long periods of time, but I do love having other people to talk creative ideas with. So like this, I love being able to talk ideas I love being able to find out about how other people work. Um, I like seeing their work. Um, uh, lots of things appeal to me and I'm very curious about them. And I think that if I allowed myself to just get stuck in my head, then that, it doesn't take me very far. I mean, I can go quite a long way on my own, but there are moments of serendipity and moments of, you know, surprise and things come out in, in communicating about the art. So for a creative person, I think it is for me really important to have other people to talk ideas with. Um, and when I was in Croatia, uh, the naive community there is like a, a huge family. They, they all go to the same events. They all see each other's exhibitions. They've known each other for decades and decades and decades. And, um, and when I came back, and we're living in Sussex, I was going up to London trying to meet people. And that, I met a lot of really fantastic people. Um, so I met Debs that way, who, who introduced us. And I got to see a lot of art and exhibitions. But I've also really enjoyed having local connections. Um, it opens up opportunities to be, have my work in shops or in galleries. Um, but I often don't even use most of those opportunities. I'm mostly just happy to 
to, to follow someone else who lives locally to me and see what their work is doing on social media. Um, I, and I, I like that, that energy. It sort of feeds my energy a bit. It's very important for artists to have a community. What inspired you to start a running creative uh, carers art classes in 2014? So the creative carers really came out of a conversation with a number of other parents at my son's school. He was at a specialist autism school and a number of the parents said that they would really enjoy just doing something for themselves and making something. I think one of them might have done art at sort of school, sort of to GCSE level, but um, hadn't really done anything since. And so it started off with four of us. For about a year and a bit, we met every week at my kitchen table. Half of it, but if so often do something on their own, then they, you know, they could sit at the table and they could work on something else, or they could just sit there and chat. Um, and it became a really nice way of being able to support each other and our experiences without necessarily having to talk about the heavy stuff that was going on um, when you're caring for um, children and young adults as they're going through puberty um, on the autistic spectrum there can be some ugliness you know there can be violence there can be angry tantrums there can be stuff that you don't understand there can be issues with school that you know it, it can become all consuming so it was really nice to have a space where we could chat about that with people who knew, but we could also chat about other things um, and, and give some perspective. So that instead of becoming obsessed with this one tricky bit of our lives, we could, we could talk about other things. Um, when that group sort of, you know, it didn't really disband. It's like a number of the students went off to different schools. So it was no longer convenient. The days became difficult for everyone to make. And I kept the website up running. Um, and I've done a couple of carer support days where you, uh, well, when they were happening in person before COVID, um, they'd have um, sort of uh, pamper days where carers would go in and it could be parent carers, but it could also be um, much older partner carers. So if someone's husband or wife had dementia, then they could come in, their carer, they could come, the person who was caring for them could come in and they could have a haircut or they could have a pedicure or they can do a bit of art. And I just have a table with supplies. And it sort of went really quiet and I became um, really involved with Alex's paperwork because he was going through a transition phase. And it's only as we've just been coming out of lockdown that I'd been thinking I really wanted to be able to, to do something more with it. And so um, what I want to offer is for people who whatever their artistic interest or creative background, even if it's like nothing, they're just kind of curious. A safe place where I'm happy to talk to them about what they're interested in, what might fit into their routines, what sort of sensory stuff they might enjoy and be able to sort of, you know, maybe point them in a direction because oftentimes the idea of doing something is really nice, um, amount of research you have to do to find something that fits really overwhelming. And if you're in a, an overwhelmed state mentally and emotionally and physically because you're caring for someone, we're the last person we look at. You know, the last person is the person who's, who's doing all this stuff for someone else. 
Um, so I've relaunched it and I've relaunched it focusing more on, on offering that kind of conversation. So um, if someone's interested and they're, they're coming from a caring background, either recently or currently, um, there's a whole lot of resources out there I didn't know about when I arrived in the UK. And I did a lot of asking questions. And I'm more than happy to sort of pass that on. And that's like, you know, everything from like professional organizations that you can go to if you need art insurance to like, literally you're interested in pottery. How about you give me 10 minutes with the computer and I'll research what's available in your area. And then I can feed that back to you and let you know what the options are. You know, so the first phone call, you know, I've said, I've said an hour, but it may be more than an hour. For some people it might be less, but the first conversation I'm more than happy to sort of just take on board sort of what they're processing at the moment, see what sort of might spark their interest and then give them the relevant kind of information back because that might just lighten the load a bit, give them space to think about themselves for a moment. And then if someone, you know, when I came back from the UK, um, one conversation would not have done me. <laughs> I, would have, I would have needed a lot more. Then for those people who, who are, you know, maybe, really starting to have more free time and want to turn maybe a card making hobby into more of a market seller, you know, going into art, little um, local community fairs and markets, then I, I can give them practical advice about that. And we can turn that into a sort of multi-session meeting, um, at which point, you know, I really would want to be making this as affordable as possible. So I'm not looking at charging, certainly not looking at charging market rates, um, but just to sort of, give them that little bit of support which might take a hobby into something that might actually earn a bit of money and then i also will still keep offering the workshops but the um physical um exploratory workshops i'd limit to sort of one you know to a care day or for a group of friends who want to just try something new and then they can see what they like and then they can go out and explore a bit more lovely to them yeah that's very interesting. I, I will put the um, detail on the description for the people who want to uh, come to your website so they can find the, yeah. the information there in the description. Um, yeah, and I would, I would reiterate that Carer is you know, used fairly loosely. I'm part of an online Facebook group that's um, Mother Artists. And I would think almost every one of them count, you know, because as long as you're spending, you know, several hours a day looking after someone else, um, some of them have art training. And so, you know, they may not need that resource. But for those of us who did not come through the academic network um, and who are trying to do stuff just on the side, I think um, I'd really like to pay some of that forward. For all the people who answered my questions, um, I, yeah, the best way I can thank them is to pay it forward, really. Thank you. It was absolutely lovely and amazing talking to you. I really had a great time and I, I learned a lot from you. Thank you so much. Well, I will certainly hope to um, see more of your stuff on social media. Um, and it's been really lovely speaking to you too. It's been very nice. It's sort of, you know, um, it's inspired me to, you know, update my Creative Cares website. <laughs> um, and to consider um, just change the energy a little bit after a year of, of working mostly with fabric and 
dealing with everyday life in the lockdown. Um, it's been really nice to sort of have that, that little nudge that says, okay, you're starting to get ready to, to paint again. And here's that little bit of a push to, to help you get going, which was lovely, I needed that. Mm -hmm.